Maya Angelou opined that there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. Teachers help their students explore the untold stories that reside in them every day. We help them grow and eventually develop their own voices that can tell their own stories. Welcome to the Hybrid Model, an education podcast. This week, Jessica and I discuss standardized tests, storytelling, mask mandates, and rethinking education in a post-pandemic world. Welcome to the show. Man, Jessica, it's been a while since we uh, since we chatted last. You know, yeah, yeah. So, uh, what's going on in the classroom? You, you still having plenty of kids show up to, to school? So I I've lost a few. I mean, I've got <laughs> I've, I think I I'm missing about three or four students in each class every day. Yeah. So lots that, of quarantines, um, also lots of infections. So yeah. Yeah, it, it seems like uh, we started out the semester, um, you know, the, the whole district. And, and it, it really is um, something the district ought to be applauded for. They've been very transparent when we have a case. Um, and they kind of have this boilerplate thing that goes out across the district, regardless of what school you're in. It's like, we've had a case in the building. We've talked to you if you've been directly exposed. If you haven't, then you're fine. Just be aware, you know. And... It, it sure seems like we would get one of those like a week, you know, like in August. And now we've gotten like three or four of those a day. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. It's not, that's not good, you know? Yeah. So what? Uh, no, <laughs> like you, you haven't emails. had to quarantine. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Not, I have not had to quarantine, no. Have you? No, but um, my youngest uh, got quarantined at Gurner. So like split in time with my wife who is a Spanish teacher in another district so Monday and Tuesday of next week I'll be home with him you know uh, doing daddy school yeah. so that should be that should be a train wreck right <laughs> can't, can't wait to do that <laughs> so it's interesting because I was having this conversation with another teacher I think our our preschool and then also our elementary schools are experiencing a lot differently than we are because they're all together all day yeah. And even if they're wearing masks, they end up being closer than six feet. I, I think it's just harder to regulate some of those expectations with the younger kids. And so they're having whole classes and whole grades and whole wings having to quarantine at one time. And that just hasn't been the case for us at high school because we're in a situation where we can be six feet apart all the time and everybody's mm -hmm. in their mask all the time. And we're not together for more than 80 or 90 minutes or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, uh, maybe surprising on some level and not surprising on others, because I think when we were trying to predict out what this year would look like, I was I was firmly convinced that the high schools would be the first things to kind of uh, get wobbly or whatever, because one kid could potentially expose four different teachers and, and uh, you know, classrooms, you know, whatever. Right. 
But I think what we have learned, which is great news in all of this, is that masks work, right? right. Yeah. So, Absolutely. like, it, the, the number of, of kids that have infected other kids or faculty and vice versa or whatever is really nominal in, in high school because we've done a good job, both as students and teachers, to make sure that our faces are covered. But also, like, the, the restrictions that we set up have worked, you know? Absolutely. like, Which is, like... Which, from an educational standpoint, I think both you and I um, want to be here, right? We want to we want to see our kids, and and we want to, you know, see their their eyeballs. Maybe not their smiling <laughs> faces, but their eyeballs, you know. Uh, and I don't know about you, but things feel like they are moving in the wrong direction Absolutely. to to keep us here, you know. Yeah, um, I mean the the cases in our area have just skyrocketed. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, a little bit, well, I think a lot of it has to do with our leadership. I mean, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a place where I think our local leadership is trying really hard to make sure we're all doing things to keep us safe, but on a state level, that just isn't happening. and. Uh, we're, you know, I think there were times where we're like, oh, don't don't go to California because they're a hotspot, and don't go to New York because they're a hotspot. And now people are like, don't go to Missouri, it's a hotspot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a hotspot that feels pretty rudderless, right? Like, uh, yeah. So I think, you know, just to remind everybody that's joining us maybe for the first time uh, here at the Hybrid Model, uh, Jessica and I are both teachers here in a suburban um, school district outside of uh, Kansas City, Missouri. But we're still directly impacted by, um, you know, laws, restriction, public health orders uh, that the city has put up. And uh, Mayor Q, uh, Quentin Lucas, uh, just went through a new series of restrictions that uh, I, I fully support. You know, I, we've got to do something to stop the spread. So that was great news. But then, you know, our governor, Mike Parsons, went on a... Uh, phone call with other public health folks in the state and was like, I'm not going to have um, a mask mandate. Uh, you guys can take care of yourselves, yada, yada, yada. And, and um, that's frustrating, you know. It's incredibly frustrating. And more frustrating is after that announcement came out, I ended up realizing that there are a lot of rural school district superintendents who wrote letters to the governor asking him to get rid of these quarantine mandates and these mask mandates for schools and how incredibly disheartening is that so yeah and i went i went to college in a rural town in missouri and i i still follow a lot of my professors and old classmates on twitter and a couple of my former classmates actually teach at the high school in that rural town, and um, they're terrified for their lives, for their safety, and their superintendent yeah. just said, you know, we're not going to do that. Yeah. We're, we're going to be in school, and well, that's awful. And th that uh, – so we had, our, we had our school board meeting last Thursday, and I don't, I don't think our school board is always on the same page. I think there are some pretty – dynamic personalities that, that um, sometimes come up. But everybody in our school board at that meeting seemed pointed in the right direction, which was Absolutely. 
really encouraging from a teaching standpoint, you know? Yes. Like, we'll, we'll see what happens, but at least uh, I think everybody in our upper administration, you know, over at central office and everybody on our school board uh, is at least thinking um, about the, the safety of teachers and the safety of kids. So I don't know. Yes, that was incredibly comforting. I, I'm really glad I tuned into that board meeting because just to, and even just to hear from our superintendent, I think just the emotion in her voice of, we need to keep our teachers safe, that's yeah. a big deal to me. Yeah, right. And, and like, that's the thing that we are seeing, right? I think they're keeping everybody as safe as humanly possible. Obviously, you know, COVID cases are going up. But I think what will ultimately, like, keep us from moving full in person or eventually maybe moving us to all virtual is is that safety piece, which is so vital, also means if I get exposed by a speech and debate kid at, uh, you know, like a speech and debate practice or something, that I've got to go in quarantine, which is a good policy, which is good, Absolutely. but it also means that we are drastically low on substitute teachers you know? yes yes and like they're nabbing people from central office and <laughs> right. like uh i just saw like a paid facebook advertisement and, like come sub in the park hill school district yes. or whatever yes. and uh i'm just curious like how successful that's going to be you know right um it's i mean we're definitely at the point i think where I think I heard someone say that this is the last play in the playbook is yeah. putting out all these advertisements for new substitutes and bringing in people from district office to act as substitutes. And once we have exhausted all of these resources, we're going to have to move to all online. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the number that I saw pop up, I think at that school board meeting, right? It's like the normal fill rate for substitute teachers they like to be somewhere between 94 and 98 percent or something and there was a day last week that it was at like 62 yes. percent <laughs> that's yeah. crazy that mean you know that means one out of every three subs essentially um is either not filled by a substitute teacher or has to be filled by somebody in the building which is uh not great yeah. you know for a variety of reasons so yeah it sure feels like the middle's not holding. You know? Yes. And I, I think we're in a good place in our school building where we really haven't had, we as teachers haven't had to fill in and substitute in other classrooms because we have a situation where if there isn't a sub, our students go to a different place that's supervised. So, right. I mean, I like that we have that worked out, but I, I don't think that's the case in other buildings. So, you know, and I don't know yeah. about you, but I've I've taken off a, a half of a day so far this school year. So, um, and I, I didn't have a sub for my half of a day position. So they they ended up finding someone to fill in, I guess. But um, you know, there's that level of guilt that comes with. Oh sure. And I needed to take off this half day, and yeah, you know, there wasn't anybody to stand stand in for me. Yeah, well, that uh, so I I was off not this Monday but last because I um, had a sore throat and sniffles and I was like, oh shit, <laughs> you know, I can't I go like, in. Right, I was like, uh, <laughs> right, I was like, I think I'm okay. And that's I talked to the admin here in the building that's in charge of all that, and I was like, I think I'm okay. Um, and she's like, well, uh, you know, here here is where we go to get tested. And so I like signed up to get the test, but unless you can get into a doctor, 
and the doctor is the one that calls it in. Uh, and this was how it was uh, last week. So I think things have changed because we have some mobile testing that has opened up. Right. But it was going to cost me like 200 bucks. Yeah. So I was like, you know, I think I'll just see if I get better uh, tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I did. And Hopefully you know, everything this is like is seasonal fine. allergies and I'm going to be okay. Right, 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 right. But I think that gauntlet, right, I think everybody to a certain extent is dealing with that stress. But I think teachers especially, I don't know about you, but like sometimes in non-pandemic years, it was just more of a hassle to take off than it was to, to physically go in and teach, you know? Yes. Like I, I would rather – I would rather be there than prepare subplans and have to derail whatever momentum we had in the classroom or whatever it was. Uh, and it feels doubly more so this year. Absolutely. You know? Yes. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. If, if we move all virtual, are you – what's your, what's your feeling about that? So, I mean, it's not ideal. I mean, I, I don't like – teaching all virtual i don't like teaching from home i i don't know about you but i'm one of those teachers that, that's like when when the school day ends like i'm i'm now mom and wife and i right. i like to keep my home life and my work life separate and it's so difficult to do that working from home i learned that this yeah. spring um so i don't love that but i will say i do feel like it will be less stressful for me than teaching hybrid because right now i mean teaching hybrid is just i mean it's double the work for mm -hmm. half the results and that can be incredibly disheartening from day to day so i'm i guess i'm just trying to see a positive side to teaching all virtual which would be i think it will lessen my load a little bit um that's that's probably the only good thing and and just being able to stay home 24 7 yeah which i'm really looking forward to i'd like to not be out and about yeah well that's the that's the conundrum right like uh, i've got relatives that have had very little direct exposure right and so when they encounter somebody that is uh sick or you know like somebody that's got the sniffles or whatever they immediately like bristle and i totally understand that but i was talking to nicole about it uh that's my wife uh and i was like i don't know like i feel like i've been exposed to that so much since the beginning of the year that it's not that i am desensitized to it but it's just like something that i soldier through you know like it certainly scared the hell out of me when we started and now like when we get the administrator comes down and it's like, hey, this child was, you know, diagnosed with COVID and they were in your classroom yesterday. Like, it's just like, well. Another man. one. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so, like, I, I don't know. It's it's maybe that we see it and that we've been around it, even if we haven't been exposed to it, that yields a pretty unique perspective on everything i don't know yes i mean and i agree just being desensitized because i have found myself saying things like oh i can go into target for a little bit because i'm at school all day every day around these hundreds of people which in right. in reality i realize how incredibly flawed that logic is but i've yeah. you're right you just become desensitized and now i'm ready to go back to what we did in march and april and may where you know, I didn't leave the house. My kid didn't get in a car for three months. I mean, we just went yeah. nowhere, and I'm I'm ready yeah. to do that again, just yep. for the sake of getting some of this under control. Yeah, right. Like that. Uh, 
very clearly, we have some friends that work in um, the hospital industry, and like we our our kids are our kids are friends, and we're friends, so you know we tend to um, com- communicate directly a lot with them, and like the hospital situation here in Kansas City is not good. It and is dire. Yeah, so, so something's got to give. And the the great irony, so Mike Parsons, our governor, put out this thing a couple weeks ago allowing uh, – change the state guidelines for quarantining if school districts wanted to change their standard. Essentially, if there was direct exposure, uh, the governor said you no longer had to quarantine, both as faculty but also as student. Clearly, our school district um, – took uh, what I believe is the smart approach <laughs> and said, no, thank you, uh, right. <laughs> and, and, and have kept the policy. But, like, I, I, it feels like we are moving the in the wrong direction. We need to, you know, be encouraging uh, folks to stay home. And I think the, the weird position I'm in, and one of the things in the Parson – you know, press conference that he said that I believe is true is that a lot of times because schools are structured environments and there is an adult that forces them to wear a mask the whole day and that's the expectation that a lot of these kids are actually in a safer, lower risk environment here in the building than they are at home where their parents don't wear masks and take them to various locations and whatever. And so like, I'm like, I agree with that, but also maybe we shouldn't make this more dangerous, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I, well, it, it and, is and speaking it is. of irony, this same governor also held to his belief that masks don't work for several months. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't need masks. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago when he's having his election victory party, he was not wearing a mask. Nobody in that party was wearing a mask. He'd had COVID prior to the I mean just I yeah yeah just well, the the failed leadership in our state is incredibly sad to me right now yeah and in the great irony that no one will see right or maybe everyone will see and it just doesn't feel like that <laughs> um so there was a special session of our legislature called of which it's it's dominated by one party um and they typically tend to be that party that uh believes less in um how scary COVID can be. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to meet and pass a law uh, to exempt some companies out of COVID liability if they force their employees to come back, right? It's a different debate. I'll be glad to have that for a different <laughs> day. You know, whatever, right? But they weren't able to do that because they all got together at Branson post the election to like party it up and a whole bunch of them got <laughs> sick. They all it's got like, COVID. Yeah, right. And they're like, well, we can't ca- we can't pass COVID liability because we all got COVID. Right. <laughs> so it is, um, yeah, it, it is frustrating to be an educator when you feel like um, folks either aren't listening to educators or scientists or both. So absolutely. That's, that's, that's our reality. <laughs> I do want to say, and I've said it before, I, I feel really good about our school district and how they have handled things because I'm looking at some of the... We, for you folks who don't know, we teach in a a pretty large school district, and there are a few other large school districts around the metro, and we all usually tend to do the same things, you know, like if we're going to have some snow days or 
we're going to close for the Chiefs parade or whatever it is. <laughs> um, and a, a couple of our big districts south of us have decided to move to all virtual. However, they're also in a place where there's been a lot of back and forth. So one district in particular, which I think is uh, just a, about the same size as our school district, um, they started out all virtual and then they moved to hybrid for three weeks and now they're going back to all virtual and nobody really has a plan and their COVID cases are through the roof and they don't have the same mask requirements that we do. I mean, it's just sort of all over the place and their teachers are angry and sad and disgruntled and completely burnt out. And I, I can't imagine teaching in a situation like that because this one yeah. is hard enough. Right. Um, so I, I do think, though, if we're looking at some of the other districts in our area and how they're moving to all virtual, at least through the middle of January, I do think that's where we're heading. Yeah. And I, I don't know about you, but I've had a few meetings about what this looks like if we are all virtual. I was part of a teacher focus group with our principal to figure out what that schedule looks like. And it's it's hard and it's confusing but i gotta be honest i would rather be way over prepared for what's coming than in yep. one of those other districts where they find out the night before with the rest of the community and they don't know what's going on yeah no i think you're 100 percent right like that's uh part of the anxiety that seemed to overwhelm me in the spring and to be perfectly honest i like like i i, I have very real anxiety that tends to manifest itself um, especially in times where I don't have any power or any information, right? Because those are my coping mechanisms. If I feel like I can know enough about it, then I feel more comfortable. Or if I feel like I have the power to change something, then my, you know, my clinical anxiety tends to be a little easier to deal with, right? But we didn't have any of that in the spring. No one knew what was going to happen, both from a public health perspective, but certainly from our education perspective. And uh, like I, I felt like I had zero say. And our district, I think, has done a phenomenal job in doing both of those things. I like, I don't, I don't think there are any internal machinations that we aren't a part of. And like, uh, everybody wants to convey as much information as humanly possible. So, like. I, I feel like we're in better shape. I'm still nervous, I'm still scared, and I'm still you know anxious, but like all of that being aside, I, I really f I feel like we're all pain or like pointed in the right direction. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we'll see. But yeah, I, I tend to agree with you that I think um, it, it looks like most districts are saying after Thanksgiving, and I think these episodes will come out um, if everything works right the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So we'll, we'll all know if we're right or wrong, I think. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I really get the sense that most big districts are saying after Thanksgiving, we're going to be virtual until after, you know, Christmas, essentially after the rest of first semester is over with. And I think that makes sense. I agree. Yes. Um, I'm a little nervous about what numbers we'll do post holidays yeah <laughs> so right. maybe we just need to like revisit and revise when january comes but well and that's the thing like you talk to the kids and you know i'm like what do you think and i think they're in the same place that we are kind of resigned to it but uh, overwhelmingly you know i'm like look 
It's only going to be for because a couple of uh, the high schools close to us, a couple of our elementary schools too, have been shut down for a couple of days or a week or you know whatever, and the kids are just so weary of that, you know. Yes. He'd be like, we're going to cut down or shut down for a week, and they're like. Yeah, that's what you all told us last spring, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and you I, said and like, it was a few weeks, and it took <laughs> us months to get back here. <laughs> right, right. And, like, I I get it, you know? Like, I can't I, – I can just smile and nod my head, you know? And be like, yeah, man, I know. I'm sorry, you know? Yes, one of my friends lives in our district. She's not a teacher here. She just lives here, and so she gets the – the reports from our superintendent. So she saw the letter from our superintendent and she said, you guys are going to have a Thanksgiving break and never come back to school. Just like you did with spring break last year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so that, yeah. that might be true. <laughs> yeah. It certainly does feel like it. And I think there are enough members of the community that are not heeding, you know, public safety guidelines and are going to, are going to have big Thanksgiving bashes. And, Absolutely. uh, yeah, that the unsuls. We're we're not going to do that. We are keeping things very very small and kind of made the decision. We are cooking no matter what, you know. And we're gonna we're gonna pretend like it's Thanksgiving even if we can't have anybody around. So yes, I don't know. we are going to uh, video chat with grandparents, <laughs> and that is it. We're we're yeah. not going anywhere. No one's coming into our home. Yep. And. I, I feel like it should be that way for everyone, but yeah. that's yeah. just me, I guess. Make your pumpkin pie, <laughs> you know, make your spiral ham. We're doing both of those. It's going to be, it's going to be a blast. And like, the thing is, it, it, when we are on the other side of this and it, it, by all that, by all like facts and figures, it sure looks like we have three really powerful, really successful, um, vaccines coming, right? Absolutely. So it's here, right? It's knocking on the door. We just got to get there. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go see a freaking movie. I'm gonna go on vacation. Yes. I'm gonna see all those people I haven't seen in forever, you know. And I'm gonna party it up. And I would imagine there'll be a lot of folks uh, raring and ready to go for that. You know? Absolutely. I mean, I'm looking at some of the countries uh, in Asia, particularly where they're like having big concerts and partying, and they're doing all of the things I want to do. Yeah. And I feel yeah. so sad that here and a lot of places in Europe just completely failed from a safety standpoint. Like that could be us guys if we had just yeah. gotten this under control back in the spring. Yeah, and like But we're learning hard lessons here. Yeah. So the learning hard lessons I think is an interesting thing because I don't know if we're learning it. You know, like Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> like I, I would feel so good if I was like, Yeah, idiots, right? We gotta listen to science and next time, you know, we'll be prepared. But I feel like next time we're just gonna rehash the same stupid ass arguments that we're having now. You that know? is exactly right. It's yeah. so, so true. I, I that's the the pessimistic worldview of things. <laughs> <laughs> so uh the bulk of um Today's episode, I wanted to spend talking about this uh, Atlantic, uh, it used to be called the Atlantic Monthly, but I think it's just Atlantic now, mm -hmm. uh, had a really, really fascinating article about uh, education. What did, you, uh, what did you think of it? Well, the first thing I, I want to point out is sort of like the overall message here, which is, yeah, things aren't great for school right now, and I know everybody wants to get back to what we had before, 
But let's talk about things that weren't great before. And there are some things that we don't need to return to. And I think that's huge. I think this is a big, big step in teacher reflection when you say, okay, this pandemic has brought to light a lot of things I did as a teacher that were inequitable and unfair and held my students back. And these are things that I need to change. So yeah. that's that's the biggest thing I'm, I'm taking from this article. Yeah. So uh, the name of the article is School Wasn't So Great Before COVID Either by Erica Christakis. Christakis? I don't know. Sorry, Erica. But uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I, the thing that really appealed to me at the beginning, and I'll be the, perf- uh, the first person to tell you, um, two or three years ago, the Atlantic ran uh, a series of articles that – I would only describe as anti-teacher. Uh, they were very uh, critical of the profession generally, and not in like a really progressive, like you know, we need to teach anti-racism. It was more like um, teachers are lazy and get paid too much, right? Like uh, the kind of standard. How dare that... they take the summers off? Right, right. It was that kind of right. So when I when I saw the headline, I immediately bristled, and I was like, "What the fuck?" You know, I was ready to. Um, Get, get mad and, and start yelling at him. But I, I found this article incredibly refreshing because it leads with the idea we stand at a unique moment in time to rethink public education as we know it. And the hard reset that we are going to have at the end of second semester as we start the 2021-2022 school year is going to be really critical for instituting some of those revisions. So my question to you, Jessica, to put you on the spot, all right? If you are designing a classroom where uh, the structure isn't um, set in stone, no pun intended, uh, the curriculum is brand new, you don't have to worry about costs, you don't have to worry about school board approving new curriculum, like you get to design your dream atmosphere right and your you know your dream classroom what uh what does it look like okay i love that you asked me this question and i'm in pure english teacher fashion i'm gonna go back (laughs) to the article to support what i want here (laughs) do it there's a, a line or a piece a portion of this article that says um A good start would be to include a broader and deeper curriculum with more chances chances for children to explore, play, and build relationships with peers and teachers. Schools should also be in the business of fostering curiosity and a love of learning in all children. So for me, what that looks like, because for, so English language arts to me is all about taking this information that we have, synthesizing it, being a good critical thinker, using facts and information to defend our arguments, things like that, there would be so much choice in my classroom. And I think for me, it starts off with me as the teacher guiding that choice, maybe giving a forced choice. So, hey, you have these eight different things to choose from that you want to focus on. And we're going to talk about language and why it matters and why who tells the story matters. and. I want people to figure out, I want my students to figure out their identity, how it shapes who they are as people, how their family ties shape who they are, 
and being able to read about that and write about that um, and produce that, you know, maybe they start making podcasts or maybe they submit fiction pieces to the Atlantic or whatever it is. I, <laughs> um, yeah. But that's that's really the biggest thing is I, I really want my students to have more freedom than they have now. And I also want to reimagine what the grading situation is, because, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. Right now, our grading system is so punitive and it's demoralizing to a lot of students. And I've really had to take a hard look at myself as a teacher and my grading practices and what I need to change with that. And I think if we get rid of grades or just completely change what our grading practices are, it allows a lot of room for growth in our students. Because at yeah. that point, they're not, you know, trying to turn in some arbitrary assignment to get to some grade that they want for a GPA. And, you know, there's just, I feel like there's so much room to make mistakes and start over when you're not worried about a missing assignment. Yeah, yeah, uh, I could not agree more. I was having a conversation with a, another teacher after the board meeting because there was a, like a discussion um, at the board meeting about our standardized test scores over the spring and the fall and how our virtual learners stack up with our hybrid learners, right? And the, the conversation was about who was doing better and my beef was that we were testing to begin with, right? Exactly. <laughs> right, like who cares? Why is this still a thing that's happening right now? Right, yes. right. And, and that's why I think there is a lot of positive momentum in the community generally, right, that tends to be one of the few issues that crosses um, political boundaries. Like parents don't like standardized tests any more than teachers do, right? And I think admin have a tendency to enjoy it because they like data, right? And it, it is... Uh, a clear data point. But like, now's the time, man. We know we will have to reset how we approach evaluating students that have lived through uh, this chaos. Absolutely. And I think we are uniquely positioned as teachers to try to spearhead a movement where we were so data-driven and so data-centric that we lost our individual students in the process. And, and now we get to rediscover that if we do it right, you know? That is so huge. And I will yeah. I'll also point out, I think one of the reasons our administrators like these standardized tests is because historically our district has done so well. And <laughs> yeah. so we look so good to our community because we have trained our students to be good test takers. Yeah. And that's not, that's not what we should be doing. I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. Yeah. We shouldn't be training our students to be good test takers. We should be training them to be good humans. And a lot yeah. of that means that we're not teaching to the test anymore. And not that that's not an important skill for some students. Some students need to be good test takers for certain yep. reasons. Um, but um, your five-year-old kindergartner doesn't need to know how to take a standardized test. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't need to start establishing their their routine that this is normal uh when they're five and six you know i don't i don't find that particularly engaging or successful but you're you're so right like our our admin who i, I really do like and i think do a good job like we're really good at baseball you know like so the the, the big trick is how to convince us not to play baseball anymore right. <laughs> you know like be like 
Uh, and so I get it. I get it. But I think, uh, like, I, I think that choice that you talked about is a, a missing element and really important. Do you do you know anything about like Montessori stuff? Have you have you just a little bit and really mostly from the young child side and not right. really once they get to be teenagers. Yeah. But I, I like so and this is my bastardization of it, right? Um, <laughs> but I've had really great kids that have come from Montessori programs do really well in speech and debate. And there is a freedom element of what they do on uh, on an elementary level, right? They, both from a like a elementary from like a basic, you know, idea and principles to like an elementary education where like they've come out of those programs K through five or six. And they allow kids to dictate what they are interested in and then push them to explore those things in depth, right? And that breeds a mental curiosity that I think I, we don't necessarily have in our high school kids all the time, you know? Absolutely. Um, two things. So the first thing is I, every school year, probably since my second or third year of teaching, I've done a big research project, mm-hmm. both with freshmen and sophomores. And I give them some basic parameters, but then I say, okay, find what you're interested in, go research. And it ends up being their favorite project every year. It ends up being my favorite project every year because I get to see what they're truly interested in. But they are so conditioned that when they have that level of freedom, they have so many questions and they're so afraid of doing something wrong, right? So it's like, well, can I do this? Can I make this? Well, will I lose points if I do this? Well, what if I don't? I mean, there's that happens every single time, and I prepare myself for it, but it makes me sad every single time. Like, what have yeah. we done to our students that they have this opportunity to explore whatever they want, but they're so worried about losing points if they don't do this exactly right? And um, yeah. that's, yeah, that's hard. And I, I'd love for us to have a, just a fundamental shift so that our students have the freedom to explore without worrying about that other side of it. Yeah. So like high school is really unique, right? And I've, I've had this ongoing conversation because I have a 13 year old and uh, he's going to be in high school next year, right? Which means two things. Number one, it just means I am really, really old. Uh, (laughs) But also like uh, it's, it's, it's our time, right? Like I always, I always said, I get high school kids, right? I've done this long enough. Uh, I'm not hip and cool by any stretch of the imagination, but like I, I get high school kids. I know what makes them happy. I know what makes them sad. I, you know, like I really enjoy building those relationships. So I'm ready for Jack, right? But what I see out of a lot of high school kids is in early high school, they go through this process where they redefine themselves, right? And so we, we call it in the Unsel household, Jack 2.0, right? Mm-hmm. Jack 1.0 is like an athlete and he's a pretty good student and he's a little bit of a jokester and, you know, really laissez-faire. But, you know, there are only so many great athletes in high school. There are, you know, there are a lot more different kind of social challenges. So his social personality may change a little bit, but you know, what does Jack 2.0 look like? And the only answer I have to that is that we have to empower all of our students, not just the biological ones that I have, but all of them 
to go try new things, to go venture out, to, to try on different identities and different personalities and to see what fits, right? And we do, I think, an incredibly poor job of that in a normal year, let alone in a pandemic year for sure, you know? Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And that's, it's hard. I have found that one of my biggest challenges when I try to push students to do that is their parents. So many of them are so worried about disappointing mom and dad. And I can't read that book, Mrs. Greider, because like I can't take it home. I don't want my dad to see that I'm reading that book. Or I want to research this, but I if my mom sees it, she's gonna tell me I have to do something else. And ooh, that is, it. there are few things that make me angrier than my mom won't let me do that. <laughs> it's yeah. so hard. Well, that's, uh, it's it's tough, right? Like, uh, I don't know, I, I, I have something very similar, right? In the speech and debate world, they can do interp, right, where they, I literally have hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces in the classroom. Um, some of them traditional, like uh, in dramatic interpretation, maybe their mother or father dies or somebody dies in a car accident or I get cancer. All of that stuff is not controversial, right? Um, but then I have a ton of really new, great literature um, that are about uh, what it is to be African-American or um, you know what it was like coming out right in high school or what it's like to be transgender right and i have a variety of these things because i want to find the individual story and that's what we say what is your story what can you connect with with the understanding that mom and dad have to sign off on it and that can be that's tough you know because I would, I would love to be the empowering teacher, but at the same time, I don't, I don't want to get fired. And I also try to maintain familial boundaries, even though I think they can limit sometimes that, um, create, that new creation of identity that has to happen, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think... I think because you and I have been in the depths of teenagers for so long that I think <laughs> as parents, we can kind of see like, okay, we need to give our our own biological children the room to grow. But I, I think it's a scary place to be if you're a parent and all you know is who you were as a teenager and just trying to like help form their identities, I think is really harmful. So, um, I, I guess just uh, some specific examples for me. I use my classroom library to be inclusive. So I have so many, I mean, when we talk about diversity in our classrooms, I use my, my books for that purpose. And my students get to choose whatever. I, I basically don't put any limitations on them. Like, I just want you to read something, so just choose something. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I, have sort of a kind of a bigger collection than I've had in the past of books exploring identity. So um, maybe it's sexuality, maybe it's gender, um, maybe it's trying to figure out which race or ethnicity you relate to if you have a mixture of both or you're adopted and, or whatever. I, I just have a lot of those things and you can see students who are interested and they want to read them in class, but then I say, hey, do you want me to check that out for you? And there's this immediate no. You know, like that's not going in the backpack. That's not going home, and that's that is hard. 
Yeah. Like, I just want to call home and yell at that parent. I would never, but that's like what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's it's frustrating. And to return back to that Atlantic Monthly, uh, or Atlantic article that we were kind of talking about, I think one of the big significant limitations all of us uh, educators are going to face as we try to reimagine what education is going to look like over the next three to five years are going to be those kind of parental expectations that want things to get back to normal so that it feels normal to them and to their child and to whatever. Yes. And I, I, I don't know if there is a great uh, answer to that particular problem other than trying to build those relationships with parents so that they trust us as much as their kids do, you know? Yeah, that's and I feel like we're in an even tougher place now than we were before because there are so many people who are not trusting teachers now. Like, oh, yeah. they just they just don't want to do their jobs. And I mean, I just feel like that um, that is the narrative that's going around. And so, I mean, there are still parents who are on our side, and there are parents who are very much against us now when they were yeah. kind of more towards the middle before. Um, but I I think the other challenge though is going to be. Um, administrators both at the building level and the district level i mean that's going to be a hard hard shift for them as well yeah and so again just a specific example here by i teach a tested course so um you know part of our annual yearly progress and all of that is you know how my students perform on these standardized tests and so and i don't hate it i know some people hate teaching tested courses, but it's it's not terrible for me. Um, but because of that, you know, we're, we're in hybrid and we're maybe going to move to virtual and we're having struggles here and there. We decided as a team, everyone who teaches my course, you know, we're, we're going to make these changes. We're not we're not going to do this. And now we're going to do this. And but then an, our administrator comes in and says, mm, here's what the curriculum says. So you're going to have to do this because test is coming up in January like yeah. oh we're still testing great so that's that's going to be tough I think if we still have these standardized tests making these big changes to the curriculum that we need to are going to be really hard yeah so I, yeah. I think what you're saying about parents needing to trust us and they're going to want to feel normal again and then also our our district administrators yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the entirety of that article is is pie in the sky, right? Like, right. It, it, it presumes this reset that I think we'll never totally and fully get. But, I mean, I, I do think it is helpful in directing teachers like you and I and maybe even, um, you know, teachers that are relatively new um, towards a path that is not maybe fundamentally different, but definitely has some greater areas of emphasis and something that you mentioned earlier which is 100 percent true is that idea of like building that that individual relationship with you know with the student so i i guess my question to you is how like how do you go about building those relationships because i know it comes naturally to you and i and to some other uh, teachers that I know, but it doesn't necessarily come easy to every teacher that I think is a good teacher, you know? So how do we, what kind of advice do we have for them? Yeah, I, so I think my first one is, and maybe this is hard, maybe this is one of those fake it until you make it kind of things, 
but be genuinely interested in your students and their lives. And, and maybe, again, maybe that doesn't come naturally to everyone. I, I feel that naturally. You know, I, I'm in the business of teaching because I love young people and I just love who they are and I love hearing about their lives. But when you start asking students questions about who they are, they start to get a feel for you caring about them. And that's really, I mean, that's the biggest hurdle. Because once, yeah. once your students know that you genuinely care about them, it doesn't matter what you're teaching. I mean, they're, they're going to try to stay engaged with you through the end. Um, and it also just gives them a place to do the same to you. So yeah. this it sounds so simple, but I feel like this is the best way for these relationships to come about. You know, I, I had a student who um, came in on crutches one day, you know, hey, how'd that happen? How long are you going right. to be on crutches? Well, that's interesting. Did you have to wear a mask in the doctor's office? Did you did your parent get to go with you? You know, just asking these series of questions and then a week later, no more crutches. Oh, hey, you got your crutches off. That's awesome. Yeah, Easier to right. move around. That's great. I mean, it's it feels again. These are things that come very naturally to me. So it seems very simple, but that's how it all starts. Just that very yeah. little interaction that has absolutely nothing to do with your class or the content. And then they feel like they you care about them as a person and not just as a student. Yeah. And then what ends up happening is they start asking you questions in return. Have you ever broken a bone before? Has your kid ever broken a bone? Do you wear a mask when you go to the doctor's? I mean, it's just like, then you have these conversations and they take place in 45 seconds before the bell rings. And then you've got them the rest of the block because they yeah. know that you care about them. Yeah. So that's that's really that's probably the best piece of advice. Like even if I mean I genuinely do care, but even if you don't care, pretend like you care enough to ask the questions. Yeah. Well, yeah. and the, like that it's the the fake it to the make it thing is 100% true, right? Because we are human beings and as a result, there are some students that we gravitate to that are more interesting that we have deeper connections with. But I have found a, a, a really wise uh, older teacher once told me uh, the kids you like the least probably need you the most. Absolutely. Right? And yes. I've I've really worked hard over 16 years to make connections with kids that don't come naturally. And I'm, and I'm still learning and I'm not great at it because it, it, it is a lot more work. And it comes a lot less naturally to me, you know, like yeah. I want to talk to the kids that I can connect with really easy. And that's just <laughs> a human thing, you know, but it's establishing that quiet kid at the back. It's like what, you know, I, I need to talk to that kid uh, because I haven't. And I like my trick for whatever it is. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Is there is usually a skill or a talent or a, um, an interest that is outside of my curriculum that uh will help me make that connection to that kid, right? So in, in the speech and debate world, uh, like if they're a great artist, my, like my current president is uh, a phenomenal speech and debate kid, but she's also a phenomenal artist. And I remember looking at her drawing because there was like a month where she had to draw something every day, right? And like we had probably a 10 or 15 minute conversation about that. I didn't know that, you know, and, and so I think those moments of genuine connection are really critical and sometimes, uh, I, you know, sometimes that kid is not, uh, that, that, that kid's not getting it at home and, and we can help provide that, you know. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's big. I like that you said that the the kids you want to talk to the least probably need you the most. And I'm with you that I, I still kind of have to tell myself that like, hey, I don't think you talk to this kid once today. Like you need to talk yeah. to them first when they get to your class next or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing that I think is pretty unique to my situation is, again, just going back to my classroom library. I mean, just I, I read a ton of stuff and I, I read, read a wide range of genres. And so when I see the kid reading the sci-fi dystopian book, I'm going to go talk to him about it. And yeah. when I see the kid reading, you know, the romance, the gay romance novel, I'm going to go talk to them about it. And that's yeah. that's a that's a huge connection point for me as well. Yeah. Well, and like how cool, though, I would imagine, you know, almost every book in that library anyway. But you can you can have that connection. You can be like, oh, man, you you really like the Hunger Games. Here are three or four others. Right? Yes. And that's exactly and, what I yeah. do. And I love it. And then yeah. if they read a book that I haven't read, I just tell them, like, hey, I haven't read that book. You should let me know after you're done if I should read it, if you think it's worth me reading. And yeah. then that's, like, something that they – then they're like, oh, I need to tell Mrs. Grider about. So then that just furthers our connection. Yeah. And, and I think kind of highlights something that you do extraordinarily well, which is impart the importance of literacy. You know, like, yeah. just freaking reading. And yeah. <laughs> there are so many people – uh, who either don't credit what they read, right, because they read non-traditional stuff, and thus they consider themselves not readers, which is not true, or, like, legitimately don't read. And Tyler, that... don't get me started because I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> hey, we should... an advocate for reading, and yeah. reading anything makes you a reader. It does not matter what it is. There's... Yeah. Uh, I could just... Side note here, S.E. Hinton, who is the author of The Outsiders which yep. is like a huge, huge novel in middle school, tweeted, this was probably about a month ago, uh -huh. that graphic novels are not real books. Because yeah, I guess yeah. a lot of people have asked her about turning The Outsiders into a graphic novel, and she's like, absolutely not. And, oh, my God, teacher Twitter came for her. I mean, it was yeah. it was a whole thing. Like, reading a graphic novel makes you a reader. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, dude. It's, yeah. Like, there's no reason to uh, – like, okay, so in the in the horror community, right, we, we have something similar where it's like uh, we have gatekeepers that decide some things are horror and some things aren't, right? And I, I hate those people <laughs> because I'm a big tenter, man. It can all be horror, you know? Right. Like, like let's be accepting of the community, right? So, uh, yes, I tend to like, oh, you read a bunch of uh, stuff on TikTok? That counts, you know. Yes. You read an article on <laughs> CNN on your phone. Most definitely, that counts. Absolutely. You, know? you read those so, Instagram captions. You're a reader. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. So, and, and I that I don't think that does anybody any harm. You know. Right. To to create a larger definition. Well, probably our literacy episode because that's what I'm getting my um, ed specialist in. So oh, awesome. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super interesting. Probably should be its own episode, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, literally, I just, Tyler, I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> this I love is it. this is my true passion. Yeah, no, that's I, I think totally cool and, and super important. Yeah, uh, but maybe maybe next time. Yeah, yeah? <laughs> for sure. Well, uh, is there anything else um, in that Atlantic uh, article that you wanted to touch on or anything? 
before we totally run out of time? <laughs> so I think one of the things that wasn't a, like, a, I think a key point of the article, but that got brought up was this idea that school for our society is way more than school and maybe it shouldn't be, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe we shouldn't be your childcare provider and your nutrition provider. I mean, maybe those are things that we shouldn't be responsible for. But if we are, if as a society we say, yes, schools need to be responsible for X number of things, then we need those supports in place. We need people to pay for those programs. We need parents to be in support of those programs. If you want me to be teacher and therapist and snack provider, like I need more money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's, yeah, so... um you know, well, we need like those mental health supports in place. I mean, mm -hmm. there are just so many things that if we want schools to be these well-rounded providers of all things for our children, then let's give schools the proper supports for that. Yeah, it, it is tangentially, I think, related to um, the defund the police movement, right? Right. Because the, the defund the police movement regardless of branding like right now in the liberal community i think there is a, a schism in how that was branded but the, the the thesis of the argument was never that we wouldn't have police officers but rather we wouldn't have police officers acting as so many different um like social workers right like right. from dealing with domestic violence to taking care of kids you know to like whatever they were expected to do so much and i like the cultural expectation is that we as teachers uh, function the same way. And I find it really interesting that both are, um, you know, like both are public sector jobs, you know? Yeah, yeah. I actually read an interesting tweet probably a couple of days ago that said, you know, everyone's up in arms about defund the police, but where were you when we were defunding schools and hospitals? Yeah. Apparently that was okay with you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... and I, I just it returns back to a, a thing that hits me every every once in a while, you know, when the the day to the day the day of the day uh, job gets to me, which is man, sometimes I wish I could have a, a private sector job where I could make a ton of money and then get off at four o'clock or five o'clock or whatever time I'm done for the day, you know, even if it's late, I'm done, right? You know, yeah, because the the bottom line is no matter what kind of barriers you create. Um, to, to try to separate your life from your kid's life uh, here at school. It doesn't I'm sure, happen. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I, like I, I would hope that a child knows if they were in danger, if they you know, were in a bad situation, that they could call me. And I think mm -hmm. most of us function that way. Right. And boy, I sure like to be a day trader that just be done at five, <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> like, or whatever. I'll, I'll think about you again in the morning and not right. a second before. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And uh, it, yeah, it, it is tough. But yeah, man, at the end of the day, uh, it was nice to see the Atlantic essentially arguing, like, pay us, which, right. which you know, it, it feels like an actionable item, right? Like, we have come to see how reliable teachers are how important they are um 
you know, how essential to use the terminology right. of, of the governor, right? So pay me my money. <laughs> <laughs> pay me appropriately, please. Yes, please. Pay me please. for the job that I am doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, oh, like, you, I mean, somebody in the private sector world who works as hard as we do is making, like, three times what we make, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and they have and again, great benefits. Yeah. Well, and that uh, – that's the thing, again, for a, probably a whole another episode, but one of the, the conundrums that I, both my wife and I run into on a regular basis is um, a lot of the professional folks that we would naturally gravitate to um, that have the same college level that, you know, um, I don't know, just have similarly expert jobs, right? Uh, typically make so much more than we do right. that it's, <laughs> it's, it, it's a very strange... Uh, world where we exist in a uh, very educated, very knowledgeable uh, group of friends and colleagues, but don't have uh, a seat at the table. And, and right. primarily it's because of uh, the salary stuff. Yeah. So. Well, and your, your wife is a teacher, but uh, my husband, it, who works in sales, we have the same college degree, <laughs> same level. I would argue, and he would agree, that I work harder than he does both days, and, you know, he makes almost twice what I make, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, at least at the the Unsels, we, uh, we just yell at each other about how little both of us make. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I think, uh, you know, I think we've pretty well gotten to the root of all the arguments offered here in the Atlantic. Um where can they where can they find more of you out on the internet, Jessica? More of me on Twitter. I am at I am MRS underscore G underscore R I D E R Mrs. G Writer. And also on Instagram, Mrs. G Writer. Very good, very good. You can follow more of my stuff uh, at Ty Unsel on Twitter and uh, run the day to day at Signal Horizon. My uh, literary slash film um, magazine all about horror movies. So uh, until then, uh, let's hope we maintain the hybrid model and not the virtual model. Right. But <laughs> even if we are teaching virtually, the hybrid model will be back next week. So yeah. until then, uh, thank a teacher or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a gift card. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs>